take your Bibles and if you have them open, turn them to Acts chapter 17. And I'll read just a few verses and, uh, and then we'll work our way through this passage of Scripture. Let's start at verse 10 and uh, I think we'll read to verse 13 uh, for the time being. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Father, thank you now for a time to worship around your word. And uh, what a gift it is to have the scriptures. Um, uh, a we- means by which we can come to know about you, come to know about ourselves, come to know about salvation and Jesus Christ. Uh, what a gift they are. And Father, we also recognize that these are not normal words. These are your words. They are living words. They are enduring words. And uh, help us to understand them, I pray. Help these words to live in our hearts and our lives, not only this morning, but throughout this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing that struck me as I read this passage was that there was a comparison being made. And sometimes making a comparison can be a teaching moment. Uh, you notice in, in verse 11 there, where it said, Now these Jews, meaning the Jews in Berea, were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Paul is making a comparison between these two groups of Jews. And uh, these two cities were about 63 kilometers apart. Um, Berea was, a, was just southwest of, of Thessalonica. And uh, we'll have a chance to reference, but Paul had been in Thessalonica. There had been a riot. Uh, He had to escape by night, and so he made the journey down to Berea. And as our text says, the Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It doesn't mean that they were of better birth. It doesn't mean that they were sort of of kingly standing, that they were nobles and the rest were sort of common people. What it's referring to is, is the word is speaking more to a characteristic. It's a characteristic of the mind. And uh, if you were to read other translations, you would find them translating it variously. Um, One will say they were more open-minded. Another translation says they were more fair-minded. It means that they were well-disposed towards or they were more right-minded. In other words, it's speaking about the attitude in which they listened to new information. They were good listeners. They were open-minded to the things that were coming their way. They weren't argumentative. They weren't hard-hearted. They weren't stubborn. And as you think about just that, just as an aside, I think that's a great trait for all of us to try and cultivate in our own hearts and lives this notion of being noble-minded, of being those that certainly understand what we believe and know what we believe, but being open-minded, being fair-minded to suggestions that we've never heard before or ways of doing things that we've never done it before or ideas that we've never thought through or that don't immediately fit into what we've already embraced. But that was what characterized these, these Berean Jews. They were noble-minded. They were open-minded. They were, they were willing to listen to what somebody had to say. And so what's the context, though, in which Paul make, or Luke makes this comparison? Well, it's in context of comparing them with um, the Thessalonians and the preaching of the Word of God. 
which I think is pretty important, that, that as the gospel is going forth, people hear and receive the gospel in different ways. Uh, whenever Paul or the, the, the missionaries started out uh, in the new mission, we, we read in Acts um, that they started out in Jerusalem, Judea, and went to the ends of the earth, and it was the, the proclamation of the gospel that they were taking forth. And they initially started by going to Jews first, and then they would go to Greek cities, but they would go into synagogues. And they would go into the synagogues because there they would find people that at least had some knowledge of the scriptures, had some awareness of, of, of the teachings that, uh, that they were talked about on, on every Sabbath. And so they would go into the synagogues because there they would find people that at least had some uh, reference or understanding to the word of God. But what they would do is they were very specific about what they taught them. And uh, it, it, he talks about it in Acts chapter 17. We get a bit of an outline of what they would do in all of these synagogues. And you'll notice right away that it was Christ-centered. That what they were intent on doing was teaching about Jesus Christ. And if you're here a number of weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 17 and Paul in Athens, he quickly went from being created by God to having to respond to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is at the core and the heart of the Christian faith. And so when Paul goes into the synagogue, the first thing that he proclaims, and you see it in, in verses 2 and 3, says, Paul went in, as was his custom on the, on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. That is one of the most important things that, that we need to come to grips with. And it was one of the most important things that the Jewish people needed to come to grips with. They certainly were looking forward to a Messiah. They certainly wanted to, to have somebody that would come in and save them and somebody that would deliver them. But tell them that this Messiah must suffer and die, and that was a stumbling block to them. As Paul says in Corinthians, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jewish people. They can't bring themselves to think that they need to be saved by somebody who must suffer and die. And so Paul would go through the Scriptures and he would maybe start in Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about one that would bruise Satan's head. And then he would work his way through the scriptures. He would work his way into the Psalms. He would talk from, I'm sure he would talk from Psalm chapter 2. He would talk from Psalm chapter 16. He would move to Psalm chapter 22, where it's the Psalm that Jesus repeated on the cross. I think he would probably go into Isaiah chapter 53, where we have that amazing passage of scripture that talks about how, how somebody would have to die in our place, how somebody would have to suffer for our sins. I'm sure he would go um, probably to Leviticus chapter 1 to 7, and talk about the sacrificial system there and, and how, how, how all these um, bulls and goats and sheep were sacrificed, but how they could not really take away sins. They could only deal with it superficially. And so Paul would take them through the Scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament, and he would reason with them. He would explain to them why it was necessary for Messiah to suffer and die in order to take away their sins and so that was the first thing that he would do and that's what we often do is we we try and remind ourselves and we try and teach people that it is important to understand that we couldn't deal with our sins by ourselves that there was a sacrifice that had to be made there was a price that had to be paid there was a cost to our sins and that cost could only be paid by somebody who was perfect by somebody who suffered in our place and died for us and so he would start with the Messiah that must suffer and die. 
And then he moves on, and you note in chapter, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 17, he says there, this Jesus whom I proclaim. And so then he talks about Jesus of, of Nazareth, the real flesh and blood Jesus, the human being that was born in Nazareth, that was raised as a young child, that, that then um, had a ministry amongst the, the Jewish people and how he would go about from village to village and he would preach and he would teach and he would heal the, the sick and he would raise the dead and he would open the eyes of the blind and then how this Jesus was um, arrested and how he very real was punished and how he suffered and how then he was um, killed on a cross and he was put in a grave and then how this same Jesus was raised up on the third day and then how he walked again and how he ate again and how people touched him and how they, 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 they interacted with him and how hundreds of people saw him. And then how this same Jesus on, on that amazing day at the, at the end of 40 days was standing on the Mount of Olivet just outside of Jerusalem and he was taken up into heaven physically. And now how that same Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. And one of the proofs of that is he sent his Holy Spirit down to earth to live in everybody who accepts him as their Lord and Savior. And that's what you see happening on the day of Pentecost, how the Spirit of God actually comes now to live inside us. And Jesus can truly say, I will never leave you or forsake you because he lives in us through his Spirit. And then now, one day, this same Jesus is going to come back again. And that's going to be a day of great salvation for all who have put their faith and trust in him. And it's going to be a day of great wailing and, and agony for those who have refused to accept who he is. And so he would tell them about Jesus, the man, the human being that walked on this earth. But then it says that he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And he would put those together. And he would say that, that God was on earth in flesh. The Messiah, God, was Christ, or was Jesus, the man. And isn't that what we read when it says, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means God with, or Emmanuel, which means God with us? And isn't that what John talks about when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Isn't that what Paul means when in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form? And so he, he put those two together, and that is something that is so critical and important for us to understand. It's at the heart of our faith that we needed help. That help could only come in the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. And when we put our faith and our trust in him, then we too will be delivered from our sins. And so that was the, the content of, of Paul's teaching. And that was the rub, though. Because when Paul came to Thessalonica and he taught them that, they just went crazy on him. They said, that's a bunch of hogwash. That's a bunch of hooey. That's not what we'd ever believed. That's not what we've ever understood. You're nuts. And then what they did was they got this group of people, which I would call professional rioters, not unlike we had at the G8 or the G20, or we had at the Olympics a group of people that are just there to stir up trouble, just there to cause trouble. Professional rioters, they're not a new thing. And so they, they got this group of, of, of professional rioters to start whipping the, the city up into a frenzy and make false accusations against Paul because they were not willing to receive the word of God. And so they whipped this group up into a frenzy. They were not willing to listen. But the people in Berea said, well, I've never heard this stuff, but I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to see what Paul has to say. 
I'm, gonna, I'm not going to shut my mind off to it right away. And that is the difference between these two groups. That's the comparison that's being made. It's the comparison on how one listens to the word of God. How one responds to the word of God when it's been spoken. And that's, I think, what the comparison teaches us. Teaches us a couple of things. One, we read about the Berean Christians then. If you turn back to to verse um, 13, it says they received the word with all eagerness. Uh, There's so many things we could talk about that just the reception of the word of God. They received it. And then what did they receive? They received the word of God. And that reminds us what should be proclaimed week after week from our pulpits. The word of God. And what did they do with it? They examined it daily to see if it was so. So the, the word received means to welcome it. They, they welcomed it into their heart. They had a submission towards the word of God. They, they wanted to know what God's word had to say to them. Often you find that this word received, this word which means to welcome, is tied to the word of God. James tells us that the people in that congregation received the word with all eagerness. We read in another context of people who received the word of God in much suffering. In other words, they were getting pummeled because they were even listening to it, but they still welcomed the word of God because they wanted to hear what God had to say. In other places, we, we read how people rejoiced because they received the word of God not as the word of men, but as the word of God for what it really was. So they distinguished between um, men, uh, the words of men and the words of God, and they received it. And I think that this is one of the most important attitudes that we can cultivate, loved ones. It doesn't mean that we, 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 just, we, we shut down our minds and say, fine, just fill it. No, it means that we have an open-minded, right-minded response to, to truth. And we think about it and we, we say, well, that might not be what I like. That might not be what I heard. That might not resonate with what I've thought of before. But I'm going to think about it at least. I'm going I'm to let it come into my, my heart and I'm going to wrestle with it at least. And that's what set the Bereans apart from the Thessalonians as they received the word of God. They said, I, I'm going to listen to what this guy has to say. And this is what Luke is commending. It's, a, it's this open-minded, fair-minded, soft disposition towards the reading and the explaining and the reasoning and the proclamation of God's word. It's not, you're not going to teach me anything I don't know. But it's, you know, I, I don't really know everything, and there's a lot of stuff in this world that I can't make sense of. I'm going to see if the Bible makes any sense of it to me. And so they received the word of God. Sometimes I get asked, um, and I've seen this, I've got a, a dear friend um, who's been a Christian for 20 years, and this guy could be a professor in any seminary in the world. He is just, the, the word of God is just blown up in his life. And sometimes people ask me, why is it that some people become Christians and they're the same 20 years later as they were the day they became Christians? And other people who, who become Christians, they just grow in leaps and bounds. I think one of the keys to that is the, is the heart. It's the, it's the nature of the heart. Those who will receive the word, those who will welcome the word, those who will say, I don't know everything, I don't understand everything, I've got lots to learn. God, would you shape my life? Would you change my life? Would you teach me? Those are the ones that, that just seem to shoot ahead. It's the other ones that just fight it all the time. And they say, God's not going to teach me anything. I'm not going to change my ways. I'm not going to listen to him today. Well, they, you don't make any progress. And so the Bereans, we see the one thing about them that we learn from this comparison is that they welcomed the word of God. 
I think the second thing that, that impresses me, that not only did they have a heart response to the Word of God, but they had a head response to the Word of God. This is why I, I so appreciate Christianity. I have said a few times, you know, we don't expect anybody to check their brains out when they come in the door. In fact, I would like to say, put on your thinking caps when you come into church. God is eminently bigger than anything you will ever confront in your, with your mind. And so they examined the scriptures daily to see that these things were so. In other words, what they heard on the Sabbath, they didn't just accept. They went home and daily they wrestled with it. They investigated it. The word to examine is a word that's often used in a court setting. It means to cross-examine. It means to, to come at from different angles. And so when they went home and they had heard the word of God, they cross-examined it in their, in, with the scriptures. They said, well, is this really true? And I think this is what you should do when you're seeking to find out truth. You might be seeking out Buddhism. You might be seeking out Jehovah's Witness. You might be seeking out Mormonism. You might be seeking out Baha'i. You might be seeking out um, uh, the, the Muslim faith. Whatever it is, at least be honest, though. Examine to see if the claims that they're making are true. Work them out. See if they're logically consistent. And that's what I simply invite you to do with Christianity as well. Examine it to see if these things are so. God is looking for us. He's given us amazing minds, and we are to use them in the study of Scripture. One of the things that um, Kath and I were just away um, for holidays, and we ended our holiday in Vancouver and got to spend a couple nights um, with my mom and dad. And uh, my mom and dad are, are, are great people, um, and my mom and dad have got great minds. And uh, my dad is a preacher, um, and then he has been a teacher for 35, 40, 45 years. I don't know how long. He's got a couple of doctorate degrees. He's got a whole bunch of undergrad degrees. And uh, he's just, uh, he can be an intimidating guy. And uh, he's always intimidating when he comes to, to our church because I know when we sit down for lunch, we're going to talk about the message. But, what, um, <laughs> but what, what I've watched my dad, and this has been a real thing that, is, that, is, that has really encouraged me, is that he is now doing what the Bereans do. It's hard for a pastor to listen to another pastor because you think you know everything. But he has gone, they go to a church in, in, in um, White Rock, which the pastor's just blowing my dad's mind out every week. And it's so cool to see. And so we walk in the door, and we had sat down for maybe 10 minutes. And he says, Paul, I need to tell you about what he talked about Sunday. He's talking about the tree of life. And you know, he, he started in, in Genesis, and then he, he made some comments about it there. And then he jumped to Proverbs, where the tree of life is mentioned four times. And he took me to all the texts there. And he says, this is what he says that means. I'm not really sure, but I, I think he might be onto something. And so I'm, I've read all the commentaries on that. And he says, and you know what's even more? He says, how many trees of life are there, Paul? And I said, well, I don't, Dad, there's one. He says, well, no. He says, I went to Revelation chapter 22, and it says there that there's a river that runs out from the city of God, and on either side are a tree of life. He says, I never thought of that before. I've never seen that before. My dad has taught and read Revelation I don't know how many times, uh, and I still don't have an answer. I'm still trying to figure out. I said, well, maybe it's a big hollow tree, and the river runs through it. Um, <laughs> you know, he said, well, that's not right, Paul. Uh, so he didn't like the way I examine scriptures. Um, but... Uh, but I think the thing that, that really encouraged me was this is what my dad is doing. He's being noble-minded. He, he's, he's going home and he's, he, he's, he's, he, he respects what the guy has to say, but he doesn't just accept it blindly. 
He's going home and he's thinking about it and he's talking about it. He actually wrote me a one-page summary of the guy's messages and his thoughts and emailed it to me and asked me what I thought. And I don't expect you all to do that every week. But I think what I'm encouraging is that when you leave here, your learning doesn't stop. When you go for a walk, wrestle in your head. What did Paul say about the Bereans and the Thessalonians? I, I don't, what did he say about Jesus? What did he say about Messiah? Uh, you know, I don't know if I get that. I don't know. I'm going to read some more about that. I'm going to phone up a friend, and we're going to go for coffee, and we're going to talk about this. So you wrestle it through. You examine it daily to see what the Scriptures say about those kinds of things. And that's why we, we do sermon-based growth groups. That's why I'm wearing this shirt, growth groups. It's, a, it's an unbiased advertisement for growth groups. Um, but one of the things that growth groups provide an opportunity to, and they're sermon-based, is that during the week, we can discuss um, and take off on shooting points from the sermon to then even uh, understand it to a greater degree and wrestle with it in our lives and see how it applies in our lives. And so that's why we're encouraged, sermon-based growth groups, to take what you learn on Sunday and then to expand them in your discussions during the week. And one of the amazing things about um, both growth groups and what I learned from the Bereans is it shatters two myths that, that still find themselves mingling around the church. One of those myths is what, I, what, what, what not I've called it, but I've now embraced it. Somebody else has called it this. He calls it the holy man myth. The holy man myth. And this guy, he defines it this way. This is the ideas, or the idea that pastors and clergy somehow have a more direct line to God. It cripples the church because it overburdens pastors and underutilizes the gifts and anointing of everyone else. It mistakenly equates leadership gifts with superior spirituality. Loved ones, I want you to know that I get it wrong a lot. I want you to know that you have minds that are just as sharp as mine. I want you to know that you can go and discuss these things and, and you can come to conclusions that, that, that I haven't come to yet. I want you to know that your prayers are just as powerful as my prayers or anyone else's prayers. I want you to know that your gifts of service are just as valuable as my gifts of service. I want you to know that when you go visit somebody in the hospital, that is just as important as me going and visit that person in the hospital. In other words, it doesn't have to be one person that is somehow better than everybody else that knows everything else. No, we are a congregation of God's people that are given gifts and abilities to minister to God's people. And that takes place daily as we gather together with God's people. I want to let you in on a a tiny little secret. We have a a program in our church. um, It's called Inspire, and it's our people program at the church. And uh, it's got one button that you can press on it, and it gives you a snapshot of the church so you just get a picture of um, the families and the, the people in the church and visitors and all that sort of stuff. I, I just pressed that snapshot on Thursday. These are what comes up. We have over, we had, well, this exactly, we had 1,423 people who call this church home. It is impossible for four pastors to minister to 1,423 people. Now, that doesn't mean they show up every Sunday all, all the time, but these are people that, that will come maybe once a month, twice a month, that come uh, three times a year, eight times a year, but they are people that look to this church for spiritual care and support. We've got to shatter this notion that one or two people can minister to that number of people. And we need to release one another into ministry to see those people growing in the things of the Lord. We have 720 family units that are associated with this church. That is really encouraging. But it's discouraging if, if you think that I'm the one that has to do all the work, or Sean, or Gerald, or Dan. We can't do it all. 
And so that's why it's so cool to see these Bereans gathering together during the week after Sunday and talking with one another and meeting with one another because then they act as ministers towards one another. The second myth that's shattered by, by this uh, sort of passage is, is the holy place myth. Uh, the holy place myth. That's the idea that somehow God's present I- presence is greater in one place than in another place. This is a quote from a guy that talks about this. Is that's why some Christians will tell a joke at the office they'd never think of repeating at church. It's why others don't think twice about lying on a loan application but still swear by the Ten Commandments. The holy place myth fosters a false dichotomy between the secular and the spiritual by leading us to believe that there are some places where God hangs out and lots of other places that he seldom frequents. I want to tell you, loved ones, that God is at work in our community. And there are holy places where every single one of you go. Because where you go, God goes. Because God lives in each one of us through his spirit. And so every place you go is a holy place. And so you don't need to come to church to find the presence of God. You can find the presence of God with a group of 8 to 12 people in your living room or around your dining room table or in a restaurant somewhere. You can find the presence of God as you're walking with somebody, talking to them about scriptures. It don't need to find God here at the church. It's not like God sort of resides up there and we come in on Sunday morning and sing loud enough and pray enough and preach enough that all of a sudden God comes down. That's not how it works. And so as we think about this particular passage, it reminds us then that there is no such thing as a a holy man in the sense of one individual that is the go-to guy. And it also reminds us that there's no such thing as the holy place where we all have to go to and God somehow dwells there more specially and more significantly than he does in other places where you frequent and where you go. I wish I could tell you stories, and, and we're going to start trying to do this more and more to, to give life stories to you, but God is doing neat things in our growth groups. Um, just the, the, the way that he is ministering to lives and, and answering prayer and, and seeing stuff done, and, and I, I just want you guys to catch that and to embrace being in part of a growth group. Why do we do sermon, sermon-based growth groups? This is a, a, a little bit... Uh, going from the context, now you need to examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Um, but uh, we do sermon-based growth groups because we believe that it's important to keep scriptures front and center. One of the things you, you will notice throughout the book of Acts is that the word of God is consistently and constantly and only what stimulates salvation, what stimulates spiritual growth. And so we believe that it really matters that when people get together Yes, we can talk about hockey. Yes, we can talk about politics. Yes, we can talk about a new book. But that's not what happens in growth groups. Growth groups are a place where we gather around the Word of God. We talk about the Word of God. We examine the Word of God in order that we can apply it in our lives, not so that we can make our heads big and puffy, but so that we can put the gospel to our feet and to our hands and to our eyes and to our mouths so that we can live out the gospel in our day today lives. And there's a lot of scriptures that we could look at that talk about that, but that's one of the things that we emphasize in our growth groups is that scripture is front and center. The second thing that we, reason we are committed to, to growth groups and sermon-based growth groups is that we believe that significant um, uh, relationships, Christian relationships, lead to Christian growth. And one of the things that I would say again and again and again is that there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. 
I understand there are circumstances in our life. It might be kids. It might be family. It might be this, where, where we can't meet regularly. And, and you do meet with one or two. But we can't consistently say, I can go it alone as a Christian. I don't need anybody else in my life. I can't find that anywhere in Scripture. There are over 30 places in Scripture where we have one another passages in the New Testament. How do you obey those passages if you're not rubbing shoulders with other Christians? How can you exhort one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, lift one another up, serve one another if you're not in close proximity to other Christians? When Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees um, about, uh, uh, about what are the greatest commandments um, and they want to trap him, he says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There it is again. I, I just love that. With your mind. You love God with your mind. It's not just this emotion and emotion is important, but we also love God with our minds. Um, and he says, and, and the second is this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's, a, there's, a, there's an otherness about the Christian faith. There's a, there's a connectedness about the Christian faith. Um, John writes there that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How do we do that if we're not in context with other Christians? If we're not in community with other Christians? How do we love one another and people see that love if we're not rubbing shoulders with other Christians? I, I, you know, it's, it's the relationships that I have with other Christians. Um, next to my relationship with God and His Word, it's those relationships that have the biggest impact on how my life goes. I've got a group of men that I meet with um, every week. And uh, they are shaping and molding me in ways that are starting to blow my mind. I have a wife that prays for me and that challenges me and shapes me and molds me every single day. I have an elders board and a deacons board and a great, uh, great minister team that speaks into my life and shapes me. This is a wonderful thing to have. That would not happen if I tried to live it on my own. So that's why we do growth groups, and that's why we encourage you to, to become part of a growth group so that you can find a way to, to, to take what is said on Sunday and, and live it out in your life during the week and talk about it and examine the Scriptures together. Loved ones, we get off balance when we think that Christianity is just about me and God. We need to have the connections and the relationships with one another. So I just want to say, you know, um, they say it at the end of the the extreme um, home makeover, um, you know, welcome back, Parksville. And we're committed to it by a commitment to, the, to, to God and his word, and we, we are committed to spiritual growth by seeing you engaged in significant Christian relationships with one another.